Good morning, everybody. Never got an introduction about my hair, um, but I'll take it, as long as I got it. <laughs> uh, it's really good to be with you guys today. Thanks for the introduction, introduction Vince. Uh, I work with young adults at Village 7, been there for a couple years now, and uh, my wife Becky and I moved here three years ago from Memphis, Tennessee, and uh, it's, it's a blessing to get to be here. It's uh, week four, grace and peace, right? This is exciting. This is so fun. We've been praying for this for a long time. It's so great. It's, it's a little sad sometimes to see some people go, but we know that it's just another family going somewhere else. It's great. We're all one church. It's great to be together. Um, some of you guys know me pretty well. It's kind of one of the fun things about being here is that I look out and I see a bunch of people that I already know really well, which is great. Um, and uh, for those of you that don't know me, hopefully uh, we can spend some time getting to hang out, talk afterwards. Um, some of you might know this if you know me, but if you don't, uh, one of my favorite comedian all time, hands down, Jerry Seinfeld. He's my favorite. Any, any Jerry Seinfeld fans? Okay, there we go. Uh, I've, I love Jerry Seinfeld. I've seen him stand up twice. Um, I'm not going to try and do any of his bits or anything like that, so don't worry. Uh, but uh, I've watched all of uh, the Seinfeld show. Thank you, freshman year of college. <laughs> Watched every episode probably at least once or twice. Um, he's got a new show, that new-ish show called Comedians in Cars Getting Coffee, where he just teams up with a comedian, gets some people that are stand-up comedians or on, on TV shows or something like that, and drives really cool cars with them, and then just goes and gets coffee. It's kind of like what he envisions, just what he wants to do for the rest of his life, and he made a show out of it, and it's really great. And uh, so in case you haven't gotten a, rec- a Netflix recommendation lately... There's another one for you, um, but there's an episode that he has with uh, Sarah Jessica Parker, who's a comedian, apparently. Um, <laughs> she's, I mean, she's been in show business for a while, but I think uh, they're like friends in real life, and so that's probably more the reason why she's on the show, and it's actually a really good episode. Um, so the, the car that they drive in that episode is actually Sarah Jessica Parker's car. It's this really old beat up, or this really old station wagon, like kind of the classic family station wagon, the wood paneling on the side, everything like that. They're driving around, they're getting all nostalgic about what it was like growing up and, and childhood and parenting and, and all those fun things about those times. And, and, uh, Jerry mentions the song, uh, Cats in the Cradle by Harry Chapin, you know, the cats in the cradle and the silver spoon. Yeah, okay, some of you guys know it. In case you don't know that song, it's about a dad that is kind of absent. He, he goes off, he starts working and traveling, and, and he's got a son, and his son wants to spend time with him. And his dad's like, I don't have time. I've got to go do all these different things. Maybe later, maybe later, and time goes on. And over time, that son begins to kind of get you know, a little hard-hearted and, and, and becomes, you know, angry at his dad. And, and so when his dad ends up wanting to reconnect later, the son says, no, I don't want any time. I don't have any time for you. And there's this sad reality that is a part of that. And Jerry's commentary about that song was, now there is a lot of, there's a song that messed up a lot of dads. <laughs> and it's kind of funny, him phrasing it like that, but there's actually something really painfully true about that reality. There's something really painfully true. Has there ever been somebody in your life 
that you just got used to them not caring about you. You got used to them not loving you. I'm sure for some people in this room, maybe it was somebody that was supposed to be there for you, that you're supposed to love you. One of those people in your life that was supposed to be there wasn't. And over time, getting used to them not caring about you. That's a really hard thing to think about. And it's not okay. It's not okay. And Jesus wants to come alongside you today. He wants to put his arm around you. He wants to put his arms around you. He has a question for you. Do you want to be healed? Do you want to be healed? Our text today, if you want to flip back into John chapter 5, I'll give you a little context for this. A few chapters before, John chapter 2 is kind of John starting this section of his where he's um, outlining Jesus' ministry. These seven signs is what y'all are starting to look through as grace and peace these first seven weeks. This is the third sign today, but, but Jesus is doing this ministry going from Galilee to Jerusalem. And, he's, and John, writing this gospel, is highlighting these seven signs, these seven miracles, these special actions by Jesus to reveal his glory to reveal his glory, and to make people have to make a decision about him. <laughs> He's putting people in the, in the scenario where they're going to have to decide about who is this Jesus? What is this guy all about? And so John is kind of outlining, he's kind of laying out his gospel by this. And so we've gone from, you know, John chapter 2 and, and the, the miracle of the turning water into wine, the wedding at Cana. Jesus, we know in John chapter 4, he has the famous interaction with the woman from Samaria, the woman at the well. He heals the official son in the latter part of John chapter 4. And then in John chapter 5, in our text today, he is going to heal this man at the pool of Bethesda. And so for John chapter 5, Jesus came to this pool, okay? And you can actually go to this pool, apparently. I haven't been to Israel, um, but you can actually go and see this. He came to this pool, and at this pool, there was all kinds of, of people that had various ailments and sicknesses. There was blind people. There was people who were lame. There was people like this man that were, that were maybe paralyzed, there's people that had all these kind of sicknesses, and they thought there was this mystical aspect to this pool. It was kind of like almost like an old wives' tale kind of thing of like when the water would get stirred up, if there was some kind of stirring of this, this pool, and then if you got yourself into this pool somehow, then you could kind of be healed, something about, or you could, you could get better. And so if you could just get yourself into this pool, then you could actually become healed or yeah, your ailment would, would, get, would be less destructive in some way. And there was a man there who was an invalid for 38 years, which in the first century probably means that this had probably been his life. He'd been paralyzed probably from the waist down or something like that for 38 years. And we think about the word an invalid, we think about what it means physically, right? We think about he had some ailment, there was something about his body that, that didn't work that well, maybe he, yeah, maybe he was paralyzed from the waist down or something like that, couldn't get himself around very easily. 
But I want you to also think about this word that we have in our text, the English text of, of an invalid. It kind of holds this, this double meaning. If we think about that word, he was invalid. And he was invalid because of his physical ailments, but he was also, that, that physical ailment meant he was invalid socially. That had actually brought him down amongst peers. He had no notoriety. He had no status whatsoever. He had no way to probably even keep himself clean in these ritual cleanings that was very important. He had no way to probably be able to do that. And I want you to think about this man. Think about 38 years. For some of us in this room, <laughs> we haven't lived that long. 38 years he'd been sitting there, maybe around that town, trying to help, you know, get people to get him around somehow. But when he's at this pool, just wanting and trying to find somebody that is paying attention to him. He's, he's invalid. He's an, he's an invalid. But Jesus comes up to this man. Jesus comes up to this man, and he sees him. Out of all the people over all the years of this man's life that haven't seen him, that haven't noticed him, Jesus sees this man, and he sees you today. And he asked this man, do you want to be healed? I'm going to think about kind of the mental nature of this, of this man that was there and, and how hard that had been for him to, to go through this. I mean, you think about, we don't even know this man's name. <laughs> we don't even have his name. And so even just what we kind of read through this text we don't really know who he is, and there's probably many people through this man's life that had no idea who he is. He's sitting there. He's wanting somebody to recognize him, maybe somebody to help him. I mean, he says in the text, I can't even get myself into the pool, and when I try to, someone else comes there before me. And when Jesus finally sees him, and he asks him this question, do you want to be healed? He doubts. He doubts in that moment. My wife Becky uh, went to a conference uh, several months ago and uh, got to hear from the speaker, uh, Kurt Thompson, who's an author and counselor. And he has a book uh, called Soul of Shame, and he has this quote from this book. And Becky actually told me this when she, after she went to the conference, and she's read the book. I actually haven't, so I'm just one of those people that's stealing a quote from a book that I haven't read. Um, <laughs> you all are out there, I know, don't judge me. Um, but she actually told me this quote, and then as I was preparing for this text, so this is like, you know, months later, I immediately made this connection because it's just, it's profoundly true. Kurt Thompson says in the book Soul of Shame, he says, we are all born into this world looking for somebody who's looking for us. We're all born into this world looking for somebody who's looking for us. And you think about this man, how long he'd been sitting there, wanting and just hoping and praying that someone would be looking for him. <laughs> he was looking for somebody who was looking for him. And then when it actually happens, when Jesus comes up to him and says, do you want to be healed? What's his response? Look back at the text. Look at verse 7. 
Right before that, Jesus says, do you want to be healed? The sick man answered him, sir, I have no one to put me into the pool when the water is stirred up. And while I'm going, another steps down before me. Jesus, or the, the, the man is like, you don't understand my situation. You know, I don't know who you are, how you think you can heal me or something like that. Let me just tell you my situation. Let me just, let me tell you what's going on in my life. He had, over time, he had this callousness about him, even just this self-sitterness. And, and yes, it's, it's hard. And we can have sympathy for, for this man because how hard it must have been for him to, to go through this this whole life. But it had hard in his heart, and it had calloused it so much that he knew what was right for him. He knew what was best for him. He knew the way that it was supposed to work. Let me just tell you what it's like to be me, Jesus, even though he doesn't know, Jesus, who this is yet. Let me just tell you what it's like to be me. We know what's best for ourselves. Aren't we the same as this? Aren't we so similar to this man and the self-centeredness that we have sometimes, the callousness that we have? We think we, just know, we know what's best for ourselves. If we could just have more money, if we could just get that, that better job, if we could just go and have that next adventure and recreate a little bit more, then that would just, that will be what we need. We could get that next fix if we could just get somebody to love us. Jesus says, do you want to be healed? Do you want to be healed? But he doesn't even stop there. Look at verses 8 and 9. He doesn't stop with the question. Jesus said to him, get up, take up your bed, and walk. And at once the man was healed, and he took up his bed and walked. Now that day was the Sabbath. Jesus heals this man. And he tells him to pick up his bed and walk. And, you know, it's kind of like this man's disposition doesn't even really change that much. You know, we have other texts throughout Scripture where there's healings and there's different kind of things. And there's these response that we have where there's some kind of emotion, there's some kind of joy. I mean, think about Acts 3.8 when, when Peter and John heal the lame beggar. You guys know this story? In this story, they heal this man. And what does he do? He began walking and leaping and praising God after he had been healed. And it's almost like this man had been healed physically. But there was something on the inside that still was hard. He hadn't truly been changed. The callousness that was, you know, taking place in his heart that had been there continued on and on. There is, a, I think, a quote that maybe you guys, some of you guys saw this week from Vince. I don't know if you, you sent that out. Um, for, to prepare for this Sunday, you guys have been doing things like that. And the quote um, from N.T. Wright says this. He says, when we learn to read the story of Jesus and see it as the story of the love of God doing for us what we could not do for ourselves, that insight produces again and again a sense of, of astonished gratitude, which is very near the heart of authentic Christian experience. Doing for us what we could not do for ourselves. I think this man, he realized there was a lot that he couldn't do for himself. He was aware of that. He had just gone to the point 
of realization that no one else is actually going to be able to do anything for him. This self-centeredness, this callousness, and Jesus comes to him, and he comes to us. For many of us that think, I know my own issues, but I also know that there's no one else that's going to care about me. There's also no one else that's going to take care of me. I need to look out for number one because no one else has. And Jesus looks at this man and he looks at you and he says, do you want to be healed? The tension in this story actually kind of surrounds that the Jews in this text and Jesus, the exchange that they have between one another and the Jews' opinion of what Jesus had done by performing this work on the Sabbath. Look at verse, the latter part of verse 9 and 10. Now that day was the Sabbath, so the Jews said to the man who had been healed, It is the Sabbath, and it is not lawful for you to take up your bed. Okay, so for the Jews, the law had kind of become an end in itself, and, in the, and their religiosity had started to become, you know, overwhelming. And so, you know, things like this, laws like this, were things that were added later. There's these traditions, these hyper-regulations so that they could start this, you know, measuring stick, if you will, of, of trying to make themselves right before God. They're trying to move the needle just a little bit, raise their status, raise their identity, even as a comparison between other people. And so things like this, this regulation was that it was unlawful on the Sabbath to move something from one room to another room. That was considered working on the Sabbath. And so this man, by taking up his bed and moving it around, was breaking the Sabbath law. And there's this outward conformity that these Jews are thinking about. This outward conformity replaced a heart commitment. An outward conformity had replaced a heart commitment. And so it was more about the things that they were doing and less about who people were and what was going on in their life. And that we know that this is a sign. This is one of the seven signs, and signs always point to something. So what is Jesus trying to point to? Um, this shouldn't be a surprise. Jesus is intentional. <laughs> he didn't, you know, the Jews didn't confront him with this. Hey, Jesus, you are doing this work. You're performing this miracle on the Sabbath. You're breaking the Sabbath. Jesus didn't think, I forgot it was the Sabbath. Oh, man, you guys got me. <laughs> Jesus wasn't fooled. He was being intentional. Why was he doing this? What is this sign all about? Jesus wanted to start. I mean, this is still early on in his ministry. And so people are trying to figure out who he is and what he's all about. Like I mentioned earlier, Jesus is trying to let them see. He's trying to shine a spotlight <laughs> on himself and be able to say, I'm not just a good teacher. I'm not just a good man. I'm not this guy that just keeps the party going at the wedding at Cana. <laughs> I'm actually not just the son of God. I am God. And that was one of the things that was blowing people's minds and that they had a really big issue with, obviously. And we know that Jesus is not recorded in this text but in a different text, in Matthew 12, 8, Jesus is asserting that he is the Lord of the Sabbath. He is the Lord of the Sabbath. 
Look at verse 18, because John kind of gives us an insight into what this is actually meaning, why, would the, why this was such a big deal to the audience at the time. Look at verse 18. This was why the Jews were seeking all the more to kill him, because not only was he breaking the Sabbath, but he was even calling God his own father, making himself equal with God. Jesus was throwing down the gauntlet. <laughs> and this is early on, and people were having a pretty hard time with what Jesus was saying. So the religiosity of these Jews and this, this callousness of just, just hypercriticism that was going on, just analyzing every single thing, we can kind of look at that as one of the issues with what's going on here with the Jews. But there's a second one that I think is also extremely important. This man, people knew about this man apparently. Jesus said he had known that this man had been there a long time. This man had been there for 38 years. He'd just been healed. And what's the Jews' response? There's no joy. There's no excitement. They're not praising God for this miraculous event that just took place. They're saying like, oh, no, 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 what's going on here? Uh, Jesus, you're doing this on the Sabbath. What are you doing? You're taking your bed over here. You're doing all this, the other kind of things. Let's just, let's stop for a second. We can celebrate later if we even will. There's, there's no joy in their hearts. There's no life. There's no excitement about the miraculous work that Jesus had did, just done. <laughs> the Jews themselves, we see that the man was, was calloused because of probably what had taken place through his whole life. And he'd been kind of hard-hearted because of that, even telling Jesus, this is how it works for me. But on the other side, there's the Jews. And at the same time, they have this hard-heartedness about them as well, Right? They have this callousness where they can't even celebrate at the miraculous healing of this man. Have you ever been too critical for your own good? Let me just give you one of my favorite scenarios to observe, a social experiment, if you will. I know that there's some of you that have observed this and been people that have been in part of this as well. Five to Say you get five to ten guys that are out in the woods together, okay? So you're out backpacking, you're out in the backcountry doing something like that, and they're given the task, give themselves the task of making a fire. So you get five to ten guys, and they're tasked with making one fire. Let me just tell you something. The criticism, the judgment... The comparison, the insecurity that takes place in this scenario, I assure you, is more entertaining than anything you'll see on primetime television. <laughs> I mean, you get in there and it's just, are we going to go teepee? Are we going to go log cabin? I'm not sure about that log placement over there. Where's the kindling? Where's the kindling? You're going to use a lighter? <laughs> it's amazing because we all think that we know the best way to do something. And that's just one of the little microcosms that we see that most evidently. <laughs> when you just get those guys in those kind of scenarios, like, I think I know the best way to make a fire. But we're no different, right? We think we know what's best for us. We think we know, you know that there's a way that something should be done. And if somebody else does something different than the way we would have done it, then we are the ones that have the authority to come in and say, let me just tell you, by the authority vested in me, <laughs> as an expert in whatever this is, we think we know the best way to do something. 
And if not, the other people are going to hear about it. We actually think we know the way somebody else should do something better than the way they should do it, better than they think they can. On a more serious note, who are we to ever think that our righteousness, that our morality, that our knowledge is superior to anybody else? (laughs) Who are we to actually think that as Christians? Paul probably dealt with this more than we realize. (laughs) And some of you guys might know, know some of the exchanges throughout Scripture that Paul had to deal with. 1 Corinthians 4, people were pitting Paul and Apollos. People were following Apollos. People were following Paul. And and Paul comes in and tries to settle some of this and try to give them the bigger picture of what's actually at stake here. He says, I've applied all these things to myself and Apollos for your benefit, brothers, that you may learn by us not to go beyond what is written, that none of you may be puffed up in favor of one against another. For who sees anything different in you? What do you have that you did not receive? And if you then received it, why do you boast as if you did not receive it? What do you have that you did not receive? What do we have in Christ that we did not receive? The only thing that we truly have to our name is our sin. And so we should be the most gracious people in the world, especially towards one another, because we understand this about each other. We understand, hey, you're in that whole group of people that think uh, about God's grace and that everything's been given to us and, you know, that we're sinful and broken and that we're desperately in need of God's grace, otherwise we're helpless. We're that group of people that thinks that, that should infiltrate the DNA of our group. And we know that Jesus' miracle here of meeting a physical need is primarily meant to shine a light on the man's spiritual paralysis and on the hard-heartedness of the Jews in this, in this passage. It's meant to drive us to the spiritual need. Jesus wants us to see what the kingdom is like in this. He wants his whole ministry, he's shining a light. What is kingdom life going to be like? Well, practically speaking, with him healing this man, there's going to be no paralysis. There's going to be no sickness. There's going to be no lame. There's going to be no death. But even deeper, there's going to be no hard-heartedness in the kingdom. We're only going to have soft hearts. Isn't that going to be a beautiful thing? Here at, at Grace and Peace, y'all are in the early stages, right? I mean, week, week four, and you guys have been meeting for that meeting before this, obviously, but you're in the early stage, and one of the exciting things about a church plant is that you get to kind of be a part of the DNA. You're forming, you're forming like the, the fibers of what this church is going to look like. What is the, the culture going to be like? We're going to be rooted in the word, but what are, what's the vibe going to be? <laughs> what's this going to be like? What do you want people, what do you want people to say about the people of grace and peace? What do you want people to say about the people of grace and peace? You say, oh man, those people, they got all their ducks in a row. They've got it all together. They know, what, they know their theology. They know what, what's going on. They overvalue tradition. They undervalue tradition. They let their pastors wear jeans. <laughs> Are they changed more by the culture or by the word. I pray, and I know that Vince prays, and everybody here hopefully prays, that the people of grace and peace have soft hearts. 
the people of grace and peace have soft hearts, soft to the Lord, knowing that he is the Lord, and we're going to sit under the word, soft hearts towards one another, knowing that we are all broken people, desperately in need of God's grace, soft hearts to the city of Colorado Springs, to the brokenness around us. You might be able to fool some people if you don't get this right. You might be able to fool some people externally, but God knows and he sees your heart. It's terrifying, right? He sees your heart and he says, do you want to be healed? I came across a story the other day that I want to read for you guys. Not a true story, I don't think, but it's great. There was a young man named Tom who lived in a small village. He was an angry young man, overreacting to every offense and keeping others at a distance. In desperation, his parents asked Tom to go and see the eccentric old priest who lived in the village. If you need a mental picture, just think of Vince. (laughs) The priest was renowned for his unorthodox methods that somehow worked. When Tom saw the priest, the older man told the youth to go away and come back with two lumps of clay. He returned a few hours later and then was told to make a vase out of one of the lumps. The young man thought that this must have been part of the therapy So he threw himself into the task with enthusiasm, believing that the opportunity to create art would help him with his temper. He made the vase, decorated it, put it in the kiln to harden it. Upon completion, Tom presented the beautiful vase to the priest. He was proud of his accomplishment and believed he was now cured of his anger issues. The priest smiled approvingly and gave gave the young man a hammer. Now hit the vase with this hammer, the priest commanded. But it will break my beautiful creation, Tom protested. Hit the vase with the hammer, the priest insisted. Don't you like it? Isn't it good enough for you? Hit the vase with the hammer, the priest continued. Annoyed, the young man snatched the hammer from the priest and tapped it firmly. The vase immediately smashed into pieces. Now look what you've done, Tom said angrily. You've wasted all my hard work. The priest ignored the outburst and left the room for a moment. He returned with the second lump of clay and placed it on the floor next to the young man. I suppose you want me to waste my time by making another vase. Well, you can forget about it, Tom said rudely. The priest looked at him with kindness and said, hit the clay with the hammer. With pleasure, the young man responded. He swung the hammer with all his might and hit the clay with with a thud, leaving a large mark. Happy now? What was the point of that? The priest picked up the broken pieces of the vase and he held them in his hands before the young man. He said, see this vase? This is like your heart. You think that you need to be hard to cope with the inevitable disappointments that happen in life. You respond with anger, bitterness, and violence, keeping people at a distance, but it doesn't work. Your hardness makes you more fragile. Adversity breaks your spirit too easily. The priest then picked up the lump of clay. It had a mark where the hammer had hit it, but it was still in one piece. You need to soften your heart and be more like this clay. It is still impacted by what happens to it, but it can be restored easier. A soft heart forgives loves, uses soft words. It understands that pain and suffering is a part of life instead of fiercely resisting it. Resisting it it absorbs the blow. It still feels the pain, but it isn't broken by it. The young man nodded thoughtfully but wasn't sure if he could change. The priest looked at him with kind eyes, placed his hand on his shoulder reassuringly, and prayed a blessing over his new friend. Lord, bless Tom with the patience and courage required to change and help him to be kind to himself when he inevitably gets it wrong. Are you struggling with callousness or self-centeredness like the paralytic man in this story? 
Are you struggling with the self-righteousness and the callous and the hard heart of the Jews in this passage? I think this is where we get stuck. We understand these kind of things, but then we still deal with the hardships of life and we don't know how to move forward. For some of you in this room, you might be saying, Lee, this is great. How am I supposed to be healed? You're saying Jesus comes to me and says, do you want to be healed? How am I supposed to be healed? Well, for some people in this room, maybe you've never truly accepted the grace of the gospel and understanding that we are all broken. Ephesians 2, that we are by nature children of wrath and we're desperately in need of God's grace. 2 Corinthians 5.21, many of you know, he who knew no sin became sin on our behalf so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. He knew no sin. He became our sin so that in him, so by, by grace alone, by faith alone, but through him we might become his perfect righteousness. Others of you have accepted this, but you have a really hard time Struggling with the self-centeredness of self-righteousness, having a hard and calloused heart, God sees you as you are. He sees you as you are. It's a heavy burden to carry around. It's a heavy burden. That's why Jesus puts a little child in front of the disciples. He puts a little child, like these kids that were up here earlier. He puts a little child in front of them in Matthew 18. He says, You see this little child? Unless you humble, whoever humbles themselves like this little child, they are the greatest in the kingdom. That's exactly what Jesus did for us. That's exactly what this table represents. Jesus humbled himself. He took on flesh. He dwelt among us. For you know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ. That though he was rich, yet for your sake, for my sake, he became poor. So that you, by his poverty, might become rich. Do you want to be healed? Come to the table of healing. Let's pray. Father, we praise you and we thank you for who you are. You are a good God. And you come to us and you ask us if you will, do you want to be healed? And we all are desperately in need of healing in some way or another. So I pray, Lord, that for the people here at Grace and Peace today, we take a long and hard look at our own lives, our own brokenness, our own need, our hard-heartedness, our self-centeredness, our self-righteousness, and we would say, Lord, would you, be, would you heal us? Would you make us more like you? Would you give us soft hearts like yours? We thank you for the picture that we have of that, even in this table, that your body was broken, your blood was spilled, so that we could become sons and daughters of the King. I pray that this picture would nourish us, would fill us up, and would make us more like you. I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.